This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. So today I am speaking with Johannes Bronkhorst about his book, A Shubda Reader, out with Columbia University Press in 2019. So uh, Dr. Bronkhorst, thank you for your time today. And let's start with a question we ask all of our guests on this podcast, which is, can you tell us briefly how you became interested in the topic of this book, which is language in Indian thought. Well, yes. Um, Let's say that I became interested in Indian thought in general um, when I was a young man and I wished to see the world from a different perspective from the one I had grown up in. Mm. And I decided to go to India, join a university and study Sanskrit. Well, to cut a long story short, uh, that's what I did. Didn't work out so easily in the beginning, but I ended up mm-hmm. um, studying uh, various um, specialties in Indian and Sanskrit literature. Primarily, initially, the literature of uh, Sanskrit grammar, which is mm-hmm. quite extensive, and on which I uh, spend a lot of time and uh, which I became something like a specialist in and on the side I was interesting interested in Indian thought more generally and I had occasion to to develop that interest and it's only over time that I started realizing that language plays a very important role in Uh, much of Indian thought, not only linguistic thought, Mm -hmm. not only thought about language, but Mm. almost all philosophical thought in India is strongly uh, colored, influenced by ideas about language. Mm. And those, uh, this I uh, try to express, uh, among others, in the book we are discussing today, a Shabda mm-hmm. reader. In fact, um, initially the book was meant to be called, um, I think, something like uh, A Shabda Reader, mm-hmm. uh, philosophy, Indian philosophy of language. Mm-hmm. And I proposed to change it. And of course, the editor somehow 
changed it back to the old one, <laughs> but I insisted that my book mm-hmm. was not or not only about Indian philosophy of language, but it was about language in classical Indian thought. And in the mm-hmm. end, they yielded. And that's now the <laughs> subtitle of the book. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Well, we can talk a little bit more about that as we proceed too. how how the the book is about not just philosophy of language and what that is and um, and how it's implicated more broadly. So, but let we, before we get into the book itself, let's just back up briefly because your book is part of a series of readers published by Columbia University Press. Can yes. you tell us just a little bit about what the, what is the goal of that series and how does your book, A Shabda Reader, fit into it? Yeah, well, it is part of historical source books in classical Indian thought. That is the kind of the series title. And um, Sheldon Pollock, he uh, accepted to um, find uh, people willing to write about various topics. It's not only about um, philosophical topics, but a number Mm -hmm. of topics that play a more or less important role in Indian thought. Mm-hmm. I think um, mine is the third volume that mm-hmm. has come out. The first one was uh, about rasa, and that means something like aesthetic enjoyment, mm-hmm. and uh, on which uh, Pollock himself uh, wrote a volume. And that, of course, is not what we would call philosophy. Mm-hmm. The second volume is... Um, is a Dharma reader by mm-hmm. Patrick Olivelle, and Dharma is something like a law, social law, in mm-hmm. a certain sense. And the other volumes that are still in preparation, and that should come out, uh, I don't know quite when, mm-hmm. some of those are really philosophical, but mm-hmm. others are, for example, about Indian medicine, Ayurveda, um, about um, astronomy and astrology in India, Jyotisha, and um, a number of topics like yoga, of course, will have a volume. So a number of issues, a number of topics that are together perhaps give an impression of much of Indian thought have been chosen and specialists uh, authors have been found to prepare readers on all those topics. So that's mm-hmm. a bit the context in which my book um, has to be understood. Wonderful. So when you were thinking about writing and um, writing the book, collecting together the texts, of course, Indian thought is is long and and deep, uh, wide ranging. So how did you select the particular authors and texts for this volume? Uh, And as you explain that, can you tell our our listeners who may not be familiar with Indian thought, what languages are they writing in and during what time period? Well, the uh, texts I have dealt with, they cover a period from a few centuries before the common era until roughly the year um, uh, 1700. So that is a a time span of 2000 years. 
Mm-hmm. Most of the texts that I have considered are in Sanskrit, but mm-hmm. of course I have to a much more limited extent also used sources in Pali, which is a language used by Buddhists. They mm-hmm. also had some ideas about uh, language or uh, relevant to the topic of this book. So these are, well, there's a small passage which um, has been reconstructed from the Chinese, but essentially Mm -hmm. most of the texts are, were in Sanskrit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so how did you, when you're looking at 2000 years of Indian thought, how did you select which texts and authors to choose? Certainly there are, there are authors and texts which aren't in the book, um, how did you decide which ones went in? Well, um, of course, having myself a background, primary background in Indian linguistic literature and grammatical literature, the text that was particularly important for this whole enterprise is um, the so-called Mahabhashya, Great Commentary, mm-hmm. by uh, Patanjali. Mm-hmm. This text was composed probably towards the end of the second century before the Common Era. And it, the importance of this text, on the one hand, it's quite technical, it's very mm-hmm. difficult. At the same time, its importance, importance can hardly be underestimated because almost all authors who wrote in Sanskrit knew this text quite well. So this text is, in a way, at the beginning of uh, much of Indian thought, and I had occasion to um, to show that by uh, presenting extracts from that work, but of course also then to show how certain issues raised there were taken up later by other thinkers and developed in their own way or perhaps contradicted. Mm. So that was a point of departure. Another very important thinker uh, on whom I had spent over the years quite a lot of time mm-hmm. is someone called Bhartrihari, mm-hmm. uh, who lived in the middle of the first millennium, say maybe fifth century. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is always considered the philosopher of grammar, which mm-hmm. I think um, doesn't do him enough justice because his book is much more than philosophy of grammar. It is just mm-hmm. a, a full philosophical system that he presents. Um, but he is very well acquainted with the grammatical literature. Mm-hmm. In fact, he wrote a commentary on the work of Patanjali, which I just mentioned. Hmm. So he is a key figure. He developed new ideas. And then there were, um, well, for the early period, I had to bring in Buddhist thinkers, or rather I would Mm -hmm. say Buddhist thoughts, because we do not always know exactly who wrote what in the early Mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. And here an important distinction had to be made between the Brahmanical tradition, which is the tradition of 
Patanjali, Bhaktrihari, and so many other writers, and the Buddhist tradition. The two did not always see eye to eye. Uh, in fact, and here I come to, um, I can bring in the link with language, mm-hmm. the fundamental assumption of the Brahmanical tradition is that the Brahmanical tradition is based on the Veda. Mm-hmm. And the Veda is a collection of texts that um, was preserved and is preserved until today, very often orally. And this text was considered or came to be considered in the Brahmanical tradition as eternal. Mm-hmm. And second, as containing mantras, formulas mm-hmm. that can be used to have an effect on the world. That means these mantras were most often used initially in the context of sacrifices. Mm -hmm. They had to be pronounced correctly, otherwise the sacrifice would not have the desired end. Um, But the presupposition, which Indian thinkers became quite soon aware of, is that the importance of the Veda is based on the fact that there is a natural connection between words, language, Mm -hmm. and reality. Mm -hmm. If you use the right words in the right uh, circumstances, you have an effect on the world. And this is an absolutely fundamental assumption that underlies much of classical Indian Brahmanical thought, Mm -hmm. that the world somehow corresponds to language. Mm -hmm. Now, that was not a general observation because in the Brahmanical tradition, there is only one language, that is Mm -hmm. Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. Because the idea came to be accepted quite early on from the time of Patanjali, perhaps earlier, Mm -hmm. is that the Veda is eternal, that the Sanskrit language is eternal, mm-hmm. and that means um, Sanskrit is not a language like English or like mm-hmm. Hindi. It is mm-hmm. the language. It never mm-hmm. changes. It was always there. It will always be there. And it has a particularly close connection with, uh, let's say, objective reality. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is somehow where here you see whatever philosophy Brahmanical thinkers would present, this mm-hmm. idea was underlying it all. Mm-hmm. And that's why ideas about language pop in mm-hmm. even where you expect it least. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, actually I find it quite intriguing, one of the most orthodox Brahmanical schools called mm-hmm. Mimansa, which mm-hmm. means something like Vedic interpretation. Mm-hmm. Their task was, their self-assigned task was to interpret the Veda in a certain way, but they had their own ideas. And one of these ideas, which you held on to for a while, mm-hmm. is that um, the connection between words and things is so close that if there is a word, 
for something, that object must exist as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, this requires some adjustment from our side mm. uh, because we, in modern languages like English, if I try to convince you that there are Martians because the word Martian exists, mm-hmm. you, of course, will think that um, I'm seriously mistaken mm-hmm. or confused. Mm-hmm. That's not the kind of argument we um, consider today. But mm-hmm. if you realize that Sanskrit is not a language mm-hmm. and that Sanskrit is not a language to which you can add words as you like, create new words, it's an mm-hmm. eternal language, it becomes less absurd, this presupposition. Mm-hmm. Now, we know that certain thinkers believe that for mm-hmm. a while. They gave up on it because it became a little bit complex to, to maintain in the face of uh, uh, reality. Mm-hmm. But uh, it illustrates the fundamental attitude towards Sanskrit, that is the language of the Veda. It is in very close contact co- with reality, mm-hmm. and uh, that then influences other uh, decisions or other pro- ideas that Indian mm-hmm. philosophers um, proposed, and mm-hmm. to which we may turn in a while. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you've introduced uh, to us the Brahminical background yeah. for um, not just like you're saying philosophy of language, but Indian thought more broadly and how their linguistic presuppositions permeate uh, their all of their various projects. But you also mentioned uh, Buddhist philosophers who in many ways are opposed to these Brahminical thinkers. Um, can you tell us what early Buddhist philosophers and thinkers believe and argue about language which is different from these Brahminical thinkers? Yeah, it actually it's quite interesting to see the contrast. Um, we have good reasons to think that the early Buddhist tradition did not have one language that it preferred to other languages. The message of the Buddha was spread and local languages were used to do so. And translating from one to another was not considered a problem. And so in a certain way, language, one would think, did not uh, play such a central role. Until a certain development took place. Mm -hmm. That was um, perhaps what I would call the beginning of Buddhist rational thinking, the development of um, uh, what is called Abhidharma in northwestern India. Mm -hmm. There, uh, that we talk about probably the second century before the common era, a number of scholars, Buddhist monks, no doubt, they kind of systematized what they considered the Buddhist tradition in a way which gave rise to a complete um, system of thought, a system of way of thinking about the world. And uh, the most characteristic feature of that system of thought was that was atomic. Everything consists of ultimate parts. The term Mm -hmm. they use is dharma. Mm -hmm. So everything, including uh, tables and chairs, but also including us, human beings, Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and including even our mental life, they all consist of ultimate parts, dharmas. Mm -hmm. Now, that's one thing, and because they created lists of dharmas, and they said, there are so many dharmas, and uh, it came to a number around 100, and they mm-hmm. were supposed to constitute everything there is. But then they took a next step, um, which was actually quite dramatic. They did not only say that whatever exists consists of dharmas, but they said only these dharmas exist. That mm-hmm. means if we think, and there's a charming story in which it is illustrated, a king arrives for a discussion with a Buddhist in his chariot. Mm. And the Buddhist monk interrogates the king. And he says, you say you have arrived in a chariot. Tell me, are the wheels the chariot? Mm. Are the reins the chariot? Is this the chariot? And he enumerates Mm -hmm. all the parts of a chariot. Mm. And at each question, the king must reply, no, that's not the chariot. Mm. And then the Buddhist asks, and if you put them all on a heap, do you have a chariot? No, Mm. still you don't have a chariot. And, of course, it is presented in a somewhat humoristic manner, I would Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. because the monk says, oh, you mighty king, you, uh, as mighty as you are, um, you talk to a humble Buddhist monk and you lie. Why do you have to lie? You didn't come in a chariot. In any case, that's the way of presentation. But mm-hmm. the fundamental idea is there is no chariot. There is no anything else macroscopic that we know. Um, mm-hmm. There are not even human beings as we know them. There are only the ultimate constituents, which are the dharmas. Mm-hmm. Now, this, of course, is a bit shocking because um, the the familiar way of looking at the world is seriously disrupted in this manner. And the question Mm -hmm. is, why would anyone think that there are chariots, that there are human beings, that there are houses? Mm -hmm. And the answer given is, they are nothing but a name. Mm -hmm. In other words, the chariot of the king is not really there, Mm -hmm. but we all think it is there because of the word chariot. Mm -hmm. Now, that leads to a very interesting conclusion. The Buddhists who followed this deeply analytical philosophy, they um, started looking at the world as being very different from our common sense world, as Mm -hmm. essentially all the common sense objects that we uh, see and experience, they do not exist, but we believe they exist because of the words of language. That means, Mm. in a way, language imposes upon Mm. a very complex, deep reality the world of our common sense. Mm -hmm. And so, here again, language pops in. Language plays... The Brahmins had thought that reality corresponds to language, including the words of language. Mm -hmm. The Buddhists said, ultimately, reality does not 
correspond to anything much except our deep philosophy, but we think uh, in a certain way about reality because of the words of language. Mm-hmm. And that means, in the end, coming from two altogether direct, different directions, the Brahmanical thinkers and the Buddhist thinkers came to something different and yet quite comparable. Mm-hmm. Both said, the world of our experience corresponds to the words of language. For the Brahmin, it's like that because that's the nature of the world. Mm-hmm. For the Buddhist, it is, no, the nature of the world is different, but language imposes this particular vision of the world, and we all fall in the trap like that. Mm-hmm. Right, and so the story that you just told uh, in in in, in uh, part, the fuller account of that is found in the Shabda reader from the Mulindapana. And so that's one of the, the texts that you mentioned from Pali that is is part that's of the book. Right. Yes, right. That's right. Yeah. right. And, and so then the book also includes development from that early Buddhist text uh, later into the Abhidharma tradition, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so let's, uh, let's keep, keep going through the, the book. Um, let's return briefly to Patanjali. You did mention him earlier, uh, the Maha, uh, Bahasha and, and his, his importance. Maybe you can just expand a little bit on this for our listeners. Um, he's not the first Sanskrit thinker to be writing about grammar uh, and about the Sanskrit language. Maybe you can explain a little bit about who he is in relationship to his predecessors and as his, his importance. Yeah, well, the uh, most important and the earliest really known um, Sanskrit grammarian in India is Panini. Mm-hmm. Panini had his predecessors, but their works are lost. But Panini's work has been preserved, and it is a very detailed uh, grammar of the Sanskrit language, but formulated in very, very short uh, formulas, um, so that the whole of his grammar um, covers, in print, uh, a small booklet of 40 pages or something like that. But it is hard to understand without explanations Mm-hmm. without explanations from commentaries or something else. Um, well, in the Panini um, lived probably at the end of the 4th century before the Common Era. Um, and uh, Patanjali was in his line. Patanjali lived a few centuries later but mm-hmm. in between, lots had changed in the parts of India where they lived. Panini lived before the um, Alexander from Greece, Alexander the, the Great, as they call him, mm-hmm. made his inroads into India. And as you may recall, Alexander conquered part of Western, and basically it's all what is now Pakistan, but nonetheless, the, mm-hmm. in this uh, valley, he conquered all that, but he didn't stay for long. Mm-hmm. He went back, but he left a, a bit of a mess, politically speaking, in that yeah. area. 
And very soon after his return to the Middle East, the first big Indian empire, the so-called Maurya Empire, was <laughs> created. And um, Panini probably lived before the Maurya Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, Patanjali lived after it, that means after it had come to an end. Mm-hmm. And it had come to an end in a rather rough manner through invasions and destructions and so on. And also, um, in after the co- collapse of the Mari Empire, certain successor states, they tried to reestablish and, uh, the Brahmanical tradition. Mm-hmm. And it appears that Patanjali was in the service of one of the kings who uh, tried to reestablish the Brahmanical tradition. Mm-hmm. And that means a lot had, it was only 200 years, mm-hmm. but the world had changed almost beyond recognition. Patanjali mm-hmm. lived in a different world from Panini. Um, are there any specific questions you wanted to? No, I, I mostly was <clears throat> was wanting to get the relationship between Panini and uh, Patanjali for yeah. for our readers, so they or listeners, so they understand that this is part of uh, the commentarial tradition in in India, which is one of the things that uh, you're doing in the book is to show this development of ideas through the the changing commentarial tradition. That's right. Yes, yeah. and. Until today, Panini is almost exclusively studies, studied with the help of Patanjali's commentary. Because it's not just a commentary, it elaborates in certain ways, it comes with all kinds of uh, new approaches. And um, he has become, over the years, the key to Panini, um, even though one may wonder if in all details and respects he mm-hmm. understood Panini as Panini understood mm-hmm. himself. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Well, so so let's shift gears a little bit here. We've developed the uh, ideas in the Brahminical traditions and in Buddhist philosophy, early Buddhist philosophy. But there's a third group that the reader includes, and that's the, the Jains or the Jainas in uh, Sanskrit. Um who are these people? Why are they important in understanding language in Indian thought? Yeah. So Jainism is, like Buddhism, uh, a movement, a religious movement, different from Brahmanism. And in fact, in its origins, it was uh, geographically separate. Uh, Buddhism and Jainism originated in the northeast of India, Mm -hmm. whereas Brahmanism uh, for the early period belonged almost exclusively to the Mm Northwest, roughly speaking. Now, 
Jainism uh, originated roughly at the time of Buddhism. In fact, there are reasons to think, there are indications in the texts that the Buddha, who founded Buddhism, Mm -hmm. and the Jinnah, Mm-hmm. who either founded Jainism or he was one of the early teachers, mm-hmm. these two were contemporaries because mm-hmm. texts, they tell us that the Buddha is informed that the Jina at some point had died. So mm-hmm. they were contemporaries, but they um, were quite different from the beginning and they went their different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jainism in the early period, um, like Buddhism, is not particularly uh, uh, linked to one particular language. Mm -hmm. Um, It uh, spreads in different directions. And for the early period, it does not develop um, interesting ideas about language or ideas Mm -hmm. that are inspired by language. In fact, Jainism enters into the picture where language is concerned at Mm -hmm. a later stage. Mm. And to explain that, I must talk about a development that took place in the Brahmanical and the Buddhist traditions. If you Mm. allow me, Mm -hmm, I will concentrate on that first before I come back to Jainism. Please. Yeah. Well, I explained earlier that in the Brahmanical tradition, there was a somehow implicit conviction that Sanskrit and reality were closely connected. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned that some thought that even the individual words of Sanskrit had to correspond to things in the world. Mm-hmm. But on a somewhat more larger scale, um, this took the form that um, in a a kind of conviction that if you say a sentence, if you pronounce Mm -hmm. a sentence that's correct, that sentence corresponds to the situation it describes. Mm -hmm. So I sit on a chair, describes Mm -hmm. the situation, in which there is a high, in which there is a chair, and mm-hmm. in which there is the activity of sitting. Mm-hmm. In this example, that is innocent enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem is that if you accept that um, without exception as a general rule, you get you can get into serious trouble. Mm-hmm. Namely, if I say I write a book, Mm -hmm. then I describe a situation in which I am here, the -hmm. writing is there, but Mm -hmm. the book is not yet there. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you insist that there has to be a correspondence of the nature I just described, Mm -hmm. then you're in trouble. Where is Mm -hmm. the book? Mm -hmm. Or to give an example that's more often mentioned in the Indian texts, Mm -hmm. Potter makes Mm -hmm. A jar. Mm-hmm. Of course, there is no jar in the situation described mm-hmm. because if there were a jar, he didn't have to make it. <laughs> right. uh, you see? So 
Now, this um, perhaps to many outsiders, this sounds like um, almost like a like a game without much significance. Mm-hmm. But we learned that Indian thinkers took this very seriously. They somehow thought that cannot be like that. There is a problem here. There, the, these, this problem has ontological consequences. Mm. And we discover, indeed, that different thinkers drew different ontological consequences from statements like this. In fact, any statement, it doesn't have to be about potters mm-hmm. and jars. It can be anything that comes into existence, anything that changes, in which mm-hmm. at least one of the words does not correspond to the situation described. And so it took me a long while to realize how amazing it is that people drew such far-reaching consequences from Mm -hmm. this, what at first sight seemed to me a rather unimportant issue. In Mm -hmm. fact, some thinkers decided that Mm -hmm. in, I stick to the potter and the jar, Mm -hmm. the potter makes a jar, there has to be a jar in the situation. Mm -hmm. Now, how can that be? There is no jar because the potter is making it. No, they said the jar is already there in the clay that he's working on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, that came to be known by the name Sat Karya Vade, which means the doctrine, the position, according to which the effect, it means Mm -hmm. a jar, exists already in the cause. Mm -hmm. And this became a very fundamental position of certain philosophical schools in India, Sankhya, for example, Vedanta, um, and uh, was taken very uh, seriously. Other people drew different conclusions, even more far-reaching conclusions. There There were those who said, if it is the statement says it's self-contradictory to say the potter makes a jar, we must conclude that no such thing as making or coming into being is possible. Hmm. Now, this is, of course, um, quite drastic. It Mm -hmm. means that uh, some people um, drew the conclusion from the analysis of such sentences that the world of our experience does not exist because it cannot exist. It is self-contradictory. And and now in the Brahmanical tradition, this was of course a very major step to take Mm -hmm. to say, because the Brahmanical tradition had maintained that the world is there. The world corresponds to, to language and um, it was only rather late that they came with ideas about perhaps the world of our experience is not real, especially in Vedantic developments, roughly from the middle of the first millennium onward. And then they used these kinds of arguments. 
to show that the world is not real because it cannot be real. Mm-hmm. In the Buddhist tradition, the Buddhists had already believed since the developments of Abhidharma that I mentioned earlier, that the world of our experience is not real. They had accepted that, they had lived with it, they had drawn conclusions from it, but obviously they could not really prove it initially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Until some thinkers came up, and the most famous of these thinkers is Nagarjuna. Mm-hmm. And Nagarjuna used, among others, Arguments of the type I just mentioned to show that the world of our experience is not real because it cannot be real. Because mm-hmm. it statements like the potter makes a jar show that there cannot be a correspondence between the words in a sentence and the situation described. Mm-hmm. In fact, Uh, Nagarjuna became quite famous, and his particular take on this is often known by the name Shunya Vada, that means Mm -hmm. the doctrine according to which everything is empty. Mm -hmm. But the, the aspect I like to emphasize is that he too was at least, to a large extent, influenced by the problem that we can uh, formulate so easily in with the example of the potter who mm-hmm. makes a jar mm-hmm. so um okay I, this is by way of introduction there were other positions and there were very clever ways of dealing with it and refine it and so on the jainas that's what we started from mm-hmm. the jainas they so far they had not been Involved, they had developed own kinds of ideas about the world, um, which in which language did not play much of a role. Then they were confronted with this particular issue, because this issue, the issue of how to interpret sentences about making, about coming into being, mm-hmm. this issue apparently, at some point, became a pan-Indian issue. All Mm -hmm. Indian schools of thought had to propose some kind of answer. And um, the Jainas, at some point, had to join in, had to come with their answer. Mm -hmm. And they did, and they developed what is known by the name Anekantavada, the Mm -hmm. position according to which there are many sides to things. Mm -hmm. And in practice, this means something like, suppose I ask a giant, how do you explain a potter makes a pot? Is there a pot or not in that Mm -hmm. situation? And he would answer, from one point of view, there is a pot, namely Mm -hmm. the clay. From another point of view, there is no pot. And he would just kind of split up the situation Mm -hmm. and not choose between the options Mm -hmm. but allow all of them to exist one besides the other this Mm -hmm. was there and this became a classical position in um, Jainism Uh, a recent book not so recent book is called 
on Ekanta Vada, this particular doctrine, the central mm-hmm. philosophy of Jainism. So mm. much of their philosophical literature deals with the consequences and implications of this particular view. Mm-hmm. And that is the main contribution of Jainism in this particular debate. For the rest, mm-hmm. they were less interested in um, um, linguistic issues and they had fewer presuppositions about language. Mm-hmm. Great. So let's let's circle back to some of the the topics that are taken up in your book. So you have mentioned quite a few of them along the way as we've thought about the the different thinkers. We've talked a lot about the relationship between words and their meanings um, and a bit about sentences and their meanings and this idea of self-contradictory sentences with the the potter and and their pot. Um, but there's another question that we might think about when we're reflecting on language, and that's the relationship between words and sentences, because you might think that sentences are just groups of words, words arranged in a, a certain way. Now, uh, one of the, the topics that you take up in your book is the different views that Indian thinkers have about the relationship between words and sentences, words uh, as subunits comprising sentences. Can you speak a little bit about that topic and who takes it up? Yeah, this became another important issue um, because if you think of it, if we know what a word means and we know the meaning of every word in a sentence, is the sentence no more does it exactly express the different meanings of the words? Mm-hmm. And different thinkers, they thought um, that it might not be quite as simple as that. Now, one school that was particularly preoccupied with this, these kinds of questions is the school of Vedic interpreters, Mimansa. Mm-hmm. They... Um, for reasons of their own, they had come to the conclusion that the Vedic corpus cannot be wrong, but has to be interpreted. And if you interpret it correctly, you end up with the injunctions. That means with statements that tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. Normally they tell, because the sacrificial literature, they say, you must sacrifice in this way, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so they then had to... So their, their point of departure there is that these particular sentences, they are primarily injunctions. Mm-hmm. And when they then looked at those sentences and analyzed them, they identified the, the morpheme of the, it's always the part of the verb, the morpheme mm-hmm. of the verb that would mm-hmm. express the injunction. So the Vedic interpreters, they um, assumed that the essential sentences of the Veda expressed an injunction. Now, mm, 
if you take an English sentence of that kind, let him sacrifice this sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And um, that expresses an injunction. But you mm -hmm. would like to identify which part of the sentence does so explicitly. And because of the grammatical tradition that was already quite old at that time, the Vedic interpreters, they could say, look, it is part of the verb ending mm -hmm. that expresses injunction. Okay, fine. But then what about the other parts of the sentence? They do not stand next to the injunction with equal rights, so to say, because mm -hmm. the sentence is an injunction. So that means the other elements of the sentence, other words, other parts of words, other morphemes, they are somehow subordinated mm -hmm. to the um, injunctive part. Mm -hmm. And in this way, they came to an analysis of the sentence that was hierarchical. Mm -hmm. This is the main element, and those others are subordinate to it. They specify what must be done and how, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, this was initially, it seems, an exclusive concern of the Vedic interpreters. They wanted mm -hmm. to make sure that they understood their Vedic injunctions correctly. And indeed, for a long time, they were left more or less alone with this um, until some maybe 600 years later, a different school of thought, um, the, 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 the school of Nyaya, which had mm -hmm. been innovated and created uh, the new school of Navya Nyaya, the new Nyaya, Mm -hmm. They also felt that they had to analyze sentences and they could not agree with the Vedic interpreters. Mm -hmm. So they said, no, that is not right. Um, because for one thing, what do we do with sentences that are not injunctions? Mm -hmm. uh, Peter cooks a meal. There's no injunction. It just describes the situation. Does it is, does not describe an injunction, but what does it describe? What is the hierarchy here? Mm -hmm. And so the new Nayaikas, the new logicians, mm -hmm. they decided that the main thing in this sentence had to be the agent, mm. Peter. Peter, so this sentence, if you analyze it, um, is about Peter, who is qualified by an activity with a certain goal in a certain place and whatever. But the, the thing to be qualified here was to be the agent. Mm. And, well, so at that point, there were kind of two interpretations of sentences. And, of course, in practice, it all became quite complex because... Mm -hmm. Deeper analysis um, led to uh, well to, to 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 complex situations, but nonetheless, in outline there were two positions: either the uh, injunction is the central element of a sentence, mm 
mm-hmm. or it is the agent. Mm. And then, for a while, that went okay. And then a few hundred years later, um, the grammarians, that means the school of grammar, mm-hmm. that in the Parmenian tradition had also some, let's call them, philosophical ambitions. And they said, no, you guys, you do not analyze the sentences correctly. Mm -hmm. And um, they came with a different interpretation again, uh, namely the activity is the main part of a sentence, Mm -hmm. which then is qualified by the various elements expressed by other parts of the sentence. Mm -hmm. So all this gave rise to, uh, I would say, a rather technical and complex literature, but I think that uh, what I said so far at least gives the, the, mm-hmm. the outlines, the main points, uh, rather succinctly. Mm-hmm. Good. So, so so far we've we've then we've talked about uh, in terms of the categories that we might use today. What you might call semantics, the the referential ability of words, uh, and you've just mentioned what we might call today syntax. The syntactical structure of sentences and the, the relationships uh, among the various parts of the, um, of the sentence. Uh, there's a third category that we, we talk about today, and that's pragmatics, though what it is that we do with words and with sentences, with our, with our utterances. And that's a, a topic that also you, you include in the Shabda Reader, uh, so you include a word, excuse me, a part of a text which focuses on other uh, word functions, word capacities. So what are these other functions and how are they related to the ones that uh, we've talked about? Yeah. So, so far, I haven't mentioned the two functions, but I have talked mm-hmm. implicitly about two functions. Mm-hmm. There is the direct denotation of a word. Uh, chair refers to chair and, and things like that. But of course, in interpreting um, Vedic texts and interpreting almost all language, we have to often accept that um, a secondary a secondary function comes into play. Very often, um, if I say to someone, you're an idiot, Mm-hmm. Um, this cannot be taken literally. The other person is mm-hmm. not someone who should be uh, taken care of in a psychiatric institution. Mm-hmm. It is just a way of saying that I think a particular decision or procedure has been mm-hmm. unwise. Mm-hmm. That means I use the word liter- uh, idiot not literally, but in mm-hmm. a secondary sense. Mm-hmm. And all interpretation of text is bound to use that. The Vedic interpreters use it all the time to mm-hmm. deal with, to arrive at interpretations of Vedic sentences which seem to them acceptable. However, so these are the two functions. Mm-hmm. The metaphor is the term we can use for the second one. Mm-hmm. Metaphorical use. But some thinkers in India, and they were not primarily 
all of them of a philosophical inclination, they said, no, there is more to words. It's not only direct mm -hmm. innotation and metaphor. Words can also be used differently, especially, mm -hmm. say, in poetry or in drama, um, where um, uh, ideas may be evoked by using words. That's not metaphor, they said. This is mm -hmm. a completely different function that should be considered, and they would call that dhwani, suggestion. Mm -hmm. And so a number of, and here we leave the area of, of philosophy in some sense, because this is more like poetic thinking, mm -hmm. the analysis, but that was quite developed in classical India. Mm -hmm. So a number of thinkers, they thought that dhwani is a, a, a function of the word that we should also include as mm -hmm. one of the possible functions of words. Mm -hmm. Now, since this topic did not fit really fit into the reader as I presented it, mm -hmm. because um, there is, as I said, the first volume of the series of books is about rasa, po mm -hmm. uh, poetic enjoyment, and uh, questions like Vani should have their place there. Mm -hmm. However, I did include um, a, a passage from one author in particular mm -hmm. who maintained that we can do without dhani because these functions of the word can be covered by the ordinary two, denotation and metaphor. And that, of course, is an author whom you know better than I. Um, <laughs> <Talk> about that. <laughs> so, but in any case, I dare to uh, take a passage from his work mm -hmm. and um, include it in the reader, just to show that uh, there were also some other ideas around. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, that's Mukulabhata for that's for our, our listeners. And yep. so, so as you say, well, maybe we can talk about this real briefly, and then um, we'll kind of wrap up here. Uh, you've been throughout the interview drawing some some tentative boundaries about um, what you know today people call call philosophy or don't. And this is a, a, a podcast for the Language Channel that might get get aired on some other channels. So we're not necessarily here concerned with with philosophy or not. But one question that that um, that arises is these disciplinary boundaries. And I know this is um, this is a difficult question. Um, we have um, these thinkers in poetics. We have these thinkers in grammar. We have these thinkers in nyaya or or, or logic or reasoning. Uh, and it seems like there are these different disciplinary categories that somehow get uh, called philosophy or called something today that, that kind of groups them together. Uh, we make our own kind of disciplinary boundaries. And, and I guess what I'm curious about here is just how how do you think of this is a very broad question, but how do you think of the the disciplinary boundaries among these different thinkers in in um, in India? Because your your book is really grouped by this idea of shabda as being you know a permeating kind of idea, but it's it's cutting across a lot of types of texts, types of genres. So I'm just curious, and this is very open ended. I'm just curious about your thoughts about. What what unifies and what separates these groups of of 
of thinkers. Because um, as you say, the Mukula doesn't quite fit in exactly. The, 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 the Buddhists are doing something a little different. Just, just curious if you have any reflections on the, the lay of the land here. Yes. Thanks for asking this question, because it, as a matter of fact, I'm very suspicious with regard to uh, imposed categories. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer to follow issues rather than follow um, categories that have been imposed. Mm-hmm. And um, sure, um, one should not exaggerate this. The Indian tradition itself um, differentiated between different but often they were quite aware of each other's activities and thought and were influenced by them. Mm-hmm. So theoretically or ideally, when studying these thinkers, I try to forget whatever I know or think I know about modern categories mm-hmm. and try to imagine myself in the skin of one of these thinkers themselves. What had he read? What had he heard of? Which were the influences that he underwent? And um, that seems to me so far has been relatively fruitful because Mm -hmm. it um, allows me to cross boundaries uh, from time to time and um, come to um, ideas and conclusions that seem to me uh, worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Well, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think would be important for listeners to know about about your your book? I don't think so. I think you um, touched most of the topics. Of course, if they want to know more, they really have to mm. go and read it. But <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. We'll we'll of course have a have a link to the book. So what are you working on now, now that the Shabda Reader has, has been out? What, what are your next projects? Well, unwisely, I have accepted to translate one text, not just mm-hmm. a, a reader, but to translate a text called The Compendium of All Philosophies, Sarvadarshana mm. Sangraha, mm-hmm. which is a rather late text from the 14th century, but which claims to give a complete picture of all philosophies known to its author. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of a challenge because mm-hmm. uh, there are 16, I think, different philosophies or so-called philosophies mm. presented. And the text is complex, so I have to refer back to the original literature of those different schools. So mm-hmm. it keeps me out of trouble. Let's put it that way. Mm. <laughs> And and who is for our listeners? Who's the author of this text? The well, that already is an issue. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be Madhava, mm-hmm. but it turns out that it was probably written by someone else mm-hmm. who ascribed it to Madhava, who was known to Madhava, but who mm-hmm. had a different name, mm-hmm. Bata. Mm-hmm. And um, but um, there are a hundred different subsidiary questions related to that fact. <laughs> so. Well, we'll leave it there and then look forward to your translation and, and discussion of those, of those questions in the future. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much for your, for your time. You're welcome.